Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, what do you want to da da da? I don't know. What do y'all think we should da da da? Well, what did we da yesterday? Hmm, yesterday. All the dolls feel like the same doll these days. I know. Like, is today Monday or Tuesday? Today is Thursday. <gasps> oh no, I forgot to call my mom on her birthday. Oh no! No! These days, nothing is normal and everything is weird. But you could still save big when you switch to Progressive. That won't change. Not to die or any die. Quote to die at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Ghost of the Night, a hauntings and paranormal podcast. I am Phil Sams. Thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast. If you're new, welcome. And if you've been listening for a while now, thank you for coming back. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Be sure to let me know what you think. And you can do that on Twitter at night underscore ghost. Now, today we have a special episode. We are going to cover Lorraine Warren since she recently passed. And I want to kind of go over her career with her and her husband, Ed Warren, because they are definitely well-known in and out of the paranormal community. Everybody's heard of the Amityville Horror, which was one of their cases that put them on the map, and also the Conjuring movies, and with, naturally, the Annabelle doll. And if you watch Ghost Hunters, you know all about the Warrens. They are synonymous with the paranormal. But there is a flip side to this story. So the question is, were the Warrens the most infamous paranormal investigating duo ever or were they a little sketchy and maybe had a little touch of a con artist in them that's what we're gonna kind of tackle on this episode of ghost of the night let's go ahead and get started ghost in the night with phil sams With the recent passing of Lorraine Warren, I wanted to kind of go over her career as a paranormal investigator and a medium with and talk about her and her husband's accomplishments, maybe some of their downfalls in this episode of Ghost in the Night. Now, she re- she passed away. She was 92 years old. She's well known. Everybody has heard of Lorraine Warren because they reached popularity with a lot of cases that they everybody's heard of everybody's heard of the amityville horror case and probably seen the many movies especially with you know it's been redone with ryan reynolds but everybody has seen or heard of the conjuring and then naturally the annabelle doll anybody interested in the paranormal has watched ghost adventures and they are they've they're always bringing up lorraine warren they've had the annabelle doll i believe at zach's museum I forget which episode, whether it was just a, an episode about the museum where they investigated his museum or when it was live, one of the live events. Don't really know. But bottom line is everybody's heard of the Warrens. Now, they started, they founded the New England Society for Psychic Research way back in 1952. It was basically a paranormal group before TAPS or all these paranormal groups that are in every state now. They claim they have investigated over 10,000 cases throughout the world. 
and naturally some of them being the most popular, or especially Amity of the Horror, which I'm going to get to. I want to talk about that one because that was that's the one I want to spend most of my time talking about because that is, I think, the most interesting case. But there are definitely there's definitely another side to the story that I'm also going to cover. And there's a lot of people that think maybe they were full of shit a little bit and they blew up their evidence or sometimes lack thereof evidence and just were in this to make money. So that is what I'm going to talk about. But let's go ahead and start by covering a few of their stories and then we'll kind of get into the criticism of the Warrens. Now, before I get into the stories, Lorraine Warren was said to be a medium. She could communicate with the dead or spirits. And Ed Warren was a demonologist. Now, I don't know if Ed actually studied with the uh, church to become a demonologist. I'm pretty sure he didn't take online courses like people do today to be a demonologist since the internet wasn't around back in in the 50s or 60s. So, I don't know exactly how he got the title demon, demonologist, and honestly, I don't really care. But the one thing about the Warrens that I will say, they never met a demon they didn't like. They believed that everything was a demon, and that they've stated this. Really, every interaction a paranormal investigator has had on a location, they just wasn't interacting with Aunt Betty. Aunt Betty wasn't there. It was always a demon trying to be tricky and pretend to be previously human in their life, but it always is a demon. Everything's a demon. That is where I kind of separate myself from the Warrens, and that's in my eyes, they lose a little bit of credibility. I think demons are com- are completely over pushed in today's society, and it started with them. Now it's not a knock on them, but that's what they believe, and I do not believe the same. So not everything is a demon. They thought it was. Just like the Annabelle case. Now there's, the Annabelle case basically was a Raggedy Ann doll. It was not the scary little thing you see in the, or creepy looking doll you see in the movies. It was actually a Raggedy Ann doll, which isn't creepy at all. Um, Two roommates claimed their Raggedy Ann doll was possessed by a person that was previously known in their life as Annabelle Higgins. Basically, they took the doll and they, you know, they put it on display at their family's occult museum. Now, the funny thing is, they could not just prove or disprove that this doll was truly possessed or haunted with the spirit of Annabelle Higgins. And all of the, there's not a really, there's not really a lot of evidence to support that. Everything's based on what the Warrens say. They have stated that you can't mock this doll. If you mock the doll, it will kill you. I Apparently, there's a story that's out there that they tell that a young man was on a date at the museum with his girlfriend, and he mocked the doll. They left. They died in a motorcycle accident. There's no evidence to support that, to support it either way. It's a motorcycle. They're dangerous. People die on them all the time. Was it the spirit that was took revenge on them? There's nothing to prove that it was. That is their word. That is them saying this. It could have been just coincidence. It doesn't mean that doll is haunted or possessed and will attack you. Now, if 
in that episode I spoke of earlier with Ghost Adventures, where they brought the doll in its case and they weren't allowed to touch it, they couldn't open it up, or he was the only one who could handle it. I mean, wow. I mean, that is shit. I don't. They are playing it up to the hilt. Now, is it? Is there a spirit of Annabelle Higgins attached to the doll? Sure, it's possible, I guess. I'm not personally buying it, but I don't know. But what I do know for a fact is this story has really, I mean, it's made them money. It has definitely made them money. So when you start putting money into a scenario, it changes things, and you have to kind of look at the situation a little differently. When money's involved, people get greedy and it becomes about the money. Is that the case with the Annabelle doll? Possibly because of the lack of true evidence. And nobody can get to it except for the museum. They don't just loan it out to anybody to actually do some actual investigating tests to it. So we have to take their word for it, the family's word for it, or the Ghost Adventures crew's word for it. So I'm not putting a lot of stock in it. They've made millions on this with you know, the movie and the books. So I don't put a lot of stock in that doll. Now, I'm not a big believer in haunted objects either. It's not out of the realm of possibility for a spirit to be attached to an item they had in during their life. And naturally, they and if they have to wander the world, this realm as a spirit, they might want to be around that object. Or it could just be because that object is with the family and they want to be around the family. That I don't know now. For an evil, like I said, I don't put a lot of stock in. I think the demon and evil presence are overblown so much in today's society that it just really pushes things a little too far. So I'll let you you make your own opinion on the Annabelle doll. Is it the most dangerous doll on the globe? Only you can answer that. I'm going to say no. I think it's a bunch of bullshit. Because they were well known to withhold information when it comes to some of their claims, and the animal doll is no different. So I don't, like I said, I don't put a lot of stock in it. And here's a big reason why it's because in the 70s, possession of dolls or haunted items like dolls were all the rage. And the funny thing is, just like how when the Exorcist movie came out in the 70s, it really turned the Ouija board into something demonic. I think the from some of my research um, in the 70s, the Twilight Zone did a, did a show, and it was called The Living Doll, which is very, 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 very similar to the Warren story that they give to Annabelle. Maybe this is just another case where Hollywood or the entertainment industry really put something deep into the public psyche and maybe made something that it really wasn't and forced us to believe that there might be something to haunted objects like dolls when really there isn't anything there. Now, I'm not saying that it's never the case or there's never been an object that has had an attachment of some kind of spirit to it. I just, in my experience, haven't come across it or have it hasn't been proved to me, essentially. And until that day, I will be a really big skeptic on the haunted object or haunted haunted doll facet of the paranormal. 
I need to see the evidence. I need to experience it for me to truly believe it. Okay, before we get into the criticism of the Warrens and of some of their techniques and some of their evidence and some of their stories, I really want to cover the Amityville case because that is, like I said earlier, really the one that put them on the map and really got the ball rolling for their popularity in this country or in the world when it comes to the paranormal. I've heard the Amityville house as being stated as the most haunted house or location in the world. With the claims that go on there or the experiences that some people are said to have had, that there's no doubt that it might be. But it's a much bigger and broader story that needs to be told and needs to be investigated, which it has been. You know, I'm sure you probably listened to it and probably have heard some of the stories that go along with this home. Most people are familiar with the movie version, which is really the uh, Lutz family and their experiences in the home. However, the story truly starts back in 1974 with the DeFeo family. Now, the DeFeo family was a uh, upper middle class family that owned a car dealership, and the family had five children, and naturally the mother and the father. Now, on November 13th of 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. shot and killed every member of the family with a rifle at around approximately 3.15 in the morning. Eight shots in total were fired, and later on, I believe the next day, Ronnie DeFeo confessed to the massacre of his family, to the police. Now, it's not quite as open and shut of a case as it might appear to be with the confession. There is a lot of mystery that goes along with this massacre. Now, before we kind of dive into the details of what happened that actual evening, let's kind of uh, talk a little bit about the background of the family. Now, it was not, even though it was an upper middle class family, it Every family has their dark secrets, and the DeFeo family was no different. It wasn't a perfect life by any stretch of the imagination. Um, The father, Ronald Sr., was pretty well known as somewhat of an abuser. The neighbors often heard fights going on at the residence between the mother and the father. And naturally, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. and his father pretty much had a shitty relationship, and it forced Roddy into a bad position and down the wrong path, it seems. He was well known to be a drug abuser. He had the reputation of being kind of a loser and really kept to himself. However, when he did tend to interact with people, it generally was in the form of being a troublemaker, and he got in a lot of fights, and he really wasn't that thought that well of in the community, the neighbors in the on the street that he lived weren't fond of him. They really had looked at him in a negative light. Okay, let's kind of go over some of the, more of the actual, the night that this horrific tragedy happened. Now, the story kind of goes, Ronald Jr. was in the basement. At 3.15, he went up and started to, one by one, shoot every member of the family. Like I said, he fired eight shots, killing everybody. Now, from what I've researched and found every one of the uh, victims except for one pretty much died instantly. Now the father, they estimated might have took him 10 minutes or so to actually pass away, but 
that is what happens. And after the crime, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. left the house, went to a bar, and got people to come back. And that's pretty much where it ends, and people and the police get involved the next day. Now, there are some really interesting facts of this case that really don't add up, which makes it extremely intriguing. Now, from what I've read and researched, it seems like he went through that house and cleared that house in record speed. It took him about 60 seconds to execute everybody in that household, go room to room and kill everybody. Now, naturally, the mother and father, I don't remember exact order in which they, he slaughtered them. Uh, naturally, the mother and father were in one room. He had his two younger brothers in one room. And then the two sisters, I believe they were in separate rooms. So he went through that house, executed them in approximately 60 seconds. That's impressive. To be that accurate and that efficient in that amount of time, that to me shows some training or just, or really, really lucky, I guess. Now, this is where it starts to get a little bit interesting and where some things don't truly add up. The funny thing is, it happened at 3.15 in the morning. Nobody heard a shot. No neighbors heard a shot. And it wasn't like they were on a farm with where people were living miles away. There was neighbors. Nobody heard a shot. He fired eight shots from a rifle, and nobody heard any shots. And it is common knowledge that the neighbors could actually hear him fighting at times. And in, it's in the reports that a neighbor woke up hearing the family dog bark around 315. So they heard the dog bark. They could hear him fighting at other times, but nobody heard the shot or the shots didn't wake anybody up. Now, every member of the family was found face down on the bed, shot in the back or in the head or the, or the neck areas. Every one of them. They were all found the same way. He had to start at point A and keep going to the next one. Gunshots are loud. Somebody would have heard that shot within the house. One of the victims would have heard. Why didn't they move? What was going on there to nobody heard anything? This is where it gets really tricky and really slippery trying to understand what exactly happened there. So the story really doesn't add up in my eyes and in a lot of the conspiracy theorists' eyes. Why did he kill everybody in the house? What caused him to kill everybody in the house? Yes, we know he had a shitty relationship with his father, but from what I've read, he adored his mother. His older sister, Dawn, they had a special relationship, and he didn't really seem to have any beefs with anybody in the family other than his father. So why did he slaughter everybody in the house? Nobody heard anything. They were all found in the same position, and most of them didn't move. I believe the father, I believe he was shot twice, and he did show some signs of movement. But everybody else was found in, in the same spot, and they never, it appears that they did not move. Now, it gets even more interesting. The oldest sister, Dawn, there are reports of her having gun residue, gunpowder residue on her hands, like she had fired a weapon. There are some people that believe maybe she assisted with it and then he killed her, or maybe it was a murder-suicide kind of thing. They would kill everybody and then they supposed to, he'd kill her or, and then he'd kill himself. And he just chickened out. I don't, that I don't know. Or there is some people that actually think that maybe they had a plan to kill the father 
and she just went crazy and killed everybody else. And then when he saw what she did, he turned a gun on her and shot and killed her. This is something we'll never truly know, but it definitely is interesting. And a lot of the facts don't add up as they've been reported or as the police reports say. Now, if we take a deeper look at the DeFeo family, they had mob connections. The mother, Luis, her father was a known member of the Gambino crime family out of New York. And Ronnie's uncle, on his father's side, was connected or made man with the Genovese family. So they had mob connections. And we know in that time frame, mob hits were rampant. It would not surprise me one bit if it was a mob hit. But the police did rule out the mob involvement into the killings fairly early, and they just moved right to Ronnie DeFeo Jr. And then naturally with his confession, it pretty much ended it right there. But there was members of the family that showed up that, like, I believe the uncle showed up and some other people showed up the next day, went in while the police were there. And I believe the uncle even made a phone call from the phone line and the uh, detective was smart enough and sneaky enough, I guess, to actually see what number he called, and it was a member of the Genovese crime family. So was it a mob hit? Could there have been more than one shooter? That is very plausible with the mere fact of the time that that house was cleared. Now, it appears that, according to the coroner's report, everybody was killed with the same gun that was a rifle. Now, we all know the mob, how they operated back in that day. It seems like they had a lot of people on the payroll. Maybe the uh, coroner was on the payroll. They had their confession from Junior there. And if it was a mob hit, maybe they just set him up as the patsy and told him, basically, you better take the fall for this or we're going to kill you. And then they paid off or they had the coroner on the payroll. And he said it all came from one gun. And boom, DeFeo Jr. goes to uh, the big house. That's plausible and not out of the realm of possibility in my mind. You can't rule the mob out completely just for the mere fact that shit happened all the time, especially in that time frame. That was rampant in the New York and New Jersey area. That's interesting. It makes it definite possibility and it does answer some of the questions. Now, naturally, once he confessed to the crime, he pretty much, you know, lawyered up, got an attorney and we went with the uh, something made me do it. And this is where maybe the supernatural kind of starts rearing its ugly head a little bit because naturally he's going to, sh- he confessed, he's going to shoot for the insanity complete. And he basically said that something made him do it. Some figure or some dark lady in a black hood handed him a gun and told him to kill his family. That's not surprising. That happens all the freaking time when somebody's pushing for the insanity plea. But that is where the actual supernatural starts to come in. Let's move into the next residence of the house. George Lutz buys this house and naturally gets a good deal on it a year later in December of 75. They moved into the Amityville house and immediately they start getting a little activity. The wife, Kathy, starts feeling like maybe she, like she's being touched or something's brushing against her hand. Now, reports kind of vary on whether they knew. I'm 100% sure that George Lutz knew about the massacre that happened in the house. It was only a year beforehand, and that was big news. It was 
all over the news. Everybody knew about it in the area. So I am positive George Lutz knew about it because he had to know it was, a, it was a really nice house and he got a hell of a deal on it. Now, naturally, I'm assuming that his wife knew whether they told the stepchildren or not. I don't know, but I bet my last dollar that George and his wife knew about the murders that happened in the house. And they even had the house blessed before they moved in by a priest. And it is said that the priest actually heard something tell him to get out. And he told them basically don't go into the room where the two, I believe two boys were shot. I think it was the two boys. Because one of the boys was in a wheelchair. He was had uh, something wrong with him and he needed help walking around. And so he was in a wheelchair. But that seemed to be the center point for the paranormal activity or the negative energy in the house according to the priest that went in and blessed the house. So they did not, they kind of used that room as the playroom, I guess. Nobody stayed in that room. But naturally, as they stayed there night after night, more things started to happen. George started to wake up every night at 3.15 in the morning. They only lived in the house for 28 days. According to their reports and their story, the activity started to ramp up a little bit the longer they were there. And I couldn't really find out or I didn't see or hear what actually was the catalyst for them to just pick up and leave on day 28 early in the morning. But something caused them to leave and abandon everything. So that is interesting that they only made it 28 days. Now, according to the story, in that 28 days, you know, naturally, like I said, he was waking up early. They were having some issues with flies that would seem to be coming back to life. Now, it was cooler, you know, it was December that year, so it was wintertime, so the flies shouldn't have been around. They should, you know, they shouldn't be dead. But you need to remember that from, and I saw a documentary where they really talked about this. The bodies were there. They pretty much didn't really even clean out the house that much. Some of the defaced furniture was still there. It sat there for a year. So the larvae probably were there in the walls. And George was having issues about not being able to stay warm. He was always cold. So they were cranking up the heat. Now, with that heat cranked up, maybe it brought those uh, larvae to hatch. And there you have the flies. So whether or not the flies were super because of the supernatural or just because they were the house was they had the house nice and toasty and it sprung them to life or made them hatch. I don't know. But his attitude, George's attitude seemed to change. He seemed to be getting a little darker. They are said to have heard screams and footsteps. The youngest daughter was said to have seen or have kind of like an imaginary friend and see something with red eyes sitting on the windowsill. But on, like I said, they only stayed for 20 days and they fled the house on January 14th of 1976. Now, when they left, he, this is where the Lutz story kind of takes a little bit of a turn and I start getting some questions about their story. Now, from what I, just let me say this, and this is where the Warrens start to get involved here in the future. But if I remember correctly, the Lutz families did pass polygraph tests. That well, I'll just throw that out there. Whether or not that is a valid form of telling if understanding if somebody's telling the truth or not, you know, you can have it either way. 
I don't know, but they, I do know they passed polygraph tests. But anyway, George decides he contacts a local parapsychologist and says he wants him to come and kind of investigate the house. Now, the story goes from what I saw that this investigator did kind of tell somebody, and I guess it somehow got into the paper or it got out a little bit, that he was going to actually do an investigation, a paranormal investigation at this house. And he got a phone call from George Lutz saying he didn't want this to go public. So he basically called the whole thing off. But this is where I start smelling a rat a little bit. Because according to the widow of this paranormal investigator, in an interview she did, she recounted the story that where George called him and told him it was over. He didn't want the publicity. But that very same day, George Lutz held a press conference. Why in the hell would he fire one guy, essentially, or tell him not to worry because he didn't want publicity, and then hold a press conference to talk about it? There's something going on. This is where it starts getting fishy, and this is where their story, in my eyes anyway, starts falling apart, and it starts giving me doubts on their story. Oh, and I almost forgot, this press conference was put together by the defense attorney of Ronnie DeFeo Jr. So what did that what does that tell you right there? And at this time he was working on DeFeo's appeal. So there is a story, and I believe the attorney has even he talked about this, where he sat down and interviewed Deluxe sometime prior to this, or by the time they moved out before the press conference, and they kind of talked about what was going on there, and this defense attorney apparently got the idea and they started making this plan and he was throwing ideas for book deals and movie we get hollywood involved and he was really pushing the supernatural form of it because he's looking to prepare the appeal for his client and naturally try to get him off so there starts it starts to get a little fishy at this point and in this meeting there was they were drinking they were it seems almost almost like to me that they were coming up with a plan, a kind of a money grab situation. That's what it, that's what this screams to me. But to the Lutz's credit, I they seem to go underground at this point. Now I know they moved out to California. I they might it might be about this time. I don't know exactly. But anyway, this is when the Warrens get involved. I guess they called the Warrens and Ed and Lorraine showed up to the home and did their thing, and that is what we're going to talk about next. When Lorraine first got to the property, she basically said this house was infested with demons and evil spirits or whatever. That is her first impression of the place, but that's kind of her what she does, and this is one thing that I am critical about the Warrens about. They believe everything is a demon. <clears throat> they have even stated that their ghosts or regular spirits aren't real. Every spirit that investigators interact with or any evidence they catch of a spirit is all demonic or evil. Or it's a demon just pretending to be a normal spirit or whatever. That is their philosophy and that is how, what they go by. Now, in March of 1976, a television station arranged for an investigation with the Warrens and some other psychics and some parapsychologists. So they went in there, did their investigation. Naturally, they did uh, 
some seances, tried to contact the spirits, or demons, I should say, since the Warrens were involved, and then they did a proper investigation for the time. They set up cameras, and it said that people that were at this location at this on this evening really started to act differently or started to act out of character. People were having chest pains, and there was you know, just a general feeling of heaviness in the air at this house on that evening. Now, this is where I have an issue with psychics at times, because one of the psychics that was there was quoted as saying that she felt, when she walked in there, she, you know, did her thing, did her reading, was getting all these, all this information coming to her. And here's what she said in her own words. She felt someone in the location, this person was a teenager who had done something horrific that changed his or her life. Um, no freaking shit. This was March of 76, so we were just a little bit, a year and a half, two years, 18 months, two years, something like that, removed from a horrific crime scene, a family slaughtered by one of the sons. Really? You picked up on that? Or did you pick up on it from the newscast when it happened? You're going to have to do, if you're a psychic, you got to do better than that. That's complete and total horseshit. I'm sorry. That is what gives psychics a bad name. You even stated this in a documentary. I mean, really? We know, you know what happened. Everybody knew the house. It was front page news. And you had the audacity in, to use that as a psychic evidence that you were making contact or you were feeling that, I would hope you would feel that because you knew what freaking happened. That right there throws a kink in that whole investigation. When you have somebody says that and actually states it years later in a documentary, you're full of shit. And I seriously doubt your psychic ability at this point. But there is one piece of evidence that came from this investigation, and it's a very popular, if you've followed the case, you've seen the picture. They had a camera set up to take pictures every so you know every couple seconds or whatever and it was in the hallway looking over the railing of the stairs into two bedroom or you could see two bedroom doors and there was three or four pictures that they showed and in one of the pictures there appeared to be a young boy or somebody low to the ground which we are assuming is a boy you could see make out his head and it is i mean it's good i give him credit that is probably one of the best piece of still photography of supposed paranormal evidence that I've seen, if it's legitimate. Now, here's where the problem I have. You had multiple people there. You, I mean, and this picture is so, so good. It almost, it's, you can make out details. It could just be a person screwing with us, you know, kind of got down on their knees. And it, that is the room where the two younger boys were shot. But it could have been somebody disagreeing with us, somebody that was there just kind of scrunched down and said cheese to the camera. Now, what's somewhat interesting is, you know, the eyes are a little weird, but, you know, there was a flash there. So it could have just, you know, made the eyes kind of glow, appear to glow a little bit. So, I, I mean, if it is an actual, if they can definitely prove one without a shadow of a doubt that there, there was no fakery in that or wasn't somebody just screwing around, then that's a really good piece of evidence. But I I wasn't there, so I, I can't say it is 100%. It might be, but probably not. That is the problem when you have 
a big group doing an investigation. I mean, they had all these psychics, several psychics, some parapsychologists, the Warrens, and the TV station there. It was a shit ton full of people. And accounting for all of them, you just can't do it. The fewer the people are at the investigation, the better off you are. There's less chance for any kind of fuckery going on. So, is the Amityville Horror House the most haunted house in the world? With what I've seen and what I've learned through doing a little research on it, and from my experience, I'm going to have to say no. And here's why. Naturally, the Warrens were there. It was a demon. They never met a demon they didn't like. Now, some other psychics or people with gifts have been there, and they came up with something different. Naturally, they went the old natural Indian Indian burial ground routine. So how could two people have such different stories, essentially, or different interpretations of the activity or what is supposedly there? And if it was, if that person was right, if the land was haunted or cursed, why aren't any of the neighbors speaking up and kind of validating the story? And from what, from what I've seen, the people who live in the house after, who took over the house after the Lutzes, pretty much the activity stopped. There's nothing there. So was this just a money grab or a way to kind of get 15 minutes of fame from the Lutzes? I mean, honestly, if I, if I had to, if I had to bet my life on it, I'd say this was the biggest bunch of bullshit I've ever seen. And it just grew and they made, they had to make, they made good money on it. The Warrens made good money on it. The Lutzes made, you know, pretty good money on it. So it was just a money grab. If I had to bet my life on it, that's what I would say. I'm not really buying it right now. I'm not saying there couldn't be anything there, but to the extent of what has been claimed, I'm calling bullshit. Now, let's talk about the credibility of the Warrens in general. Now, this was the one that that I feel put them on the map. And if you base your, you know, this, I'm, I don't think is that credible. There were other investigations that they've done that, you know, are more popular, like the ones that inspired the Conjuring movie series. Some of them haven't even been debunked, or people have questioned them a little bit. There's an author who wrote one of their books, who was a ghostwriter for one of their books, and he basically said in an interview that Ed came to him and basically, I think it was the Sadeki family story that he did, that he wrote the book on, and naturally he interviewed the family and everything. And that was a weird, weird story in itself. And maybe we'll cover that one at a later date. But he interviewed the family and he said they couldn't keep the story straight and he didn't know what to do with it. So when he approached the Warrens with the problem of how am I going to write this freaking book when I don't really buy the story, they can't keep it straight. They basically just said, make it work. Right there, that blows your credibility. Like I tell my kids, Lying's not the problem. You can lie and get away with it, but if you lie and don't get away with it, that throws into question everything you've ever said. That throws reasonable doubt on every, even if you're telling the truth, and if you've been, you've lied and got caught, then guess what? Even when you're telling the truth, people are going to doubt you. The same thing goes with this paranormal evidence shit. You push a, an agenda one way, and you just say, basically, throw the shit on the wall and see if it sticks, that throws into your credibility. Now, I'm not saying every case that ever the Warrens ever worked on was complete 
bullshit and they just made it all up or they over exaggerated the evidence to make a profit. But there is that little doubt, should be that little doubt in your mind that maybe that might be the case. And there have been plenty of skeptics kind of critique and call into question their investigation skills and style and their evidence. A lot of their photography has been questioned and debunked. And a lot of people or a lot of skeptics of the Warrens feel that they walked into their investigation with a predetermined conclusion of what they were going to find. It's always a demon. Maybe their objectivity was a little lacking in their investigation style. Am I going to sit here and say they're a complete and total fraud? No, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I'm sure they did come across some great paranormal activity throughout the course of their careers. However, I do feel they might have blew up their findings and their evidence and portrayed it a little bit more than what it really truly was. Now, if they did it for a profit, great. But I don't think you can take their word at gospel and bet the mortgage on it because I really do feel in my gut if from looking at the cases and looking at some of their evidence, they went in looking for it and they were going to find it. So that is going to wrap up today's episode of Ghost of the Night. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. If you liked it, be sure to like and subscribe. However you take this podcast in, whether iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Play. We are even on iHeartRadio as well. Um, if you check the video form of the podcast out, be sure to like and subscribe to the channel. Thank you once again for reaching out, leaving a review, and also sending me emails of what you like about the show. And I've gotten a few topic ideas. I appreciate all of the input, but we will be back next week. And I we are going to talk about the Akashic Records in next week's episode, so you're definitely going to want to check that out. I will have a guest on if everything goes right for that episode. So we will see you next Thursday, and take care, everybody. presents an interview with your upstairs neighbor. Hi, I'm Tia. The upstairs-downstairs neighbor dynamic is so special. We have our own language. Like when I scream at my mom on the phone, the people downstairs bang on the ceiling to show their support. The nighttime's the best time to rearrange furniture. I call it midnight feng shui. And if I sleep through my alarm in the morning, they bang on my door to wake me. So thoughtful. Progressive can't save you from your upstairs neighbor, but we can save you money when you bundle renters and auto insurance with us. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations.